Hello and welcome to the Pilgrim Way. My name is Norman Graham and I'm a minister in the Baptist Union of Churches in Scotland. The aim of these signposts is to try and help to connect the text of the Bible with our everyday lives. Welcome to our new series of signposts. We're going to be trying to go through uh, the entire Bible from start to finish uh, in just uh, a matter of about 20 um, uh, signposts or so. Uh, and so we're going to be looking at big uh, sections of scripture and zeroing in on a few key verses within those sections. And today I want to kind of really look through um, Genesis chapters 1 to 11 uh, just by focusing in on a couple of verses and I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 1 verse 24 through to chapter 2 verse 3. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that all he had made and it was very good and it was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Well, the first two chapters of Genesis can, at a glance, cause a bit of confusion because they seem to present two different creation narratives. Chapter 1 talks about God creating humans and then again in chapter 2. Uh, the connection between them is simply that chapter 1 presents a kind of summary account of creation whilst chapter 2 goes over the same ground but provides more of the detail of certain aspects of creation, especially the creation of Adam and Eve. So in fact, it's not two creation stories, but one. The Bible famously begins with the words, in the beginning God. And so from the outset, it purports to tell the story of how everything that exists came into being. And it does so from the perspective of a creator God who is both the origin and the cause of creation. Psalm 19 verse 1 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God and so simply looking at the cosmos should alert us to the existence of God. The implication being that recognising God as creator should lead us to worship him. However, for the world we live in, especially Western cultures that were once shaped by the Bible, 
The Bible story is now rejected as a source of authority generally and especially perhaps regarding the origins of the cosmos. And several key factors have led us to where we are now. The priority of human reason and the philosophy of scepticism that were central to the aspects of the Enlightenment, a period of scientific, philosophical and political discovery and change, it kind of destabilised uh, belief in the authority of the Bible. Then in 1859, Charles Darwin's book, The Origin of the Species, theorised an alternative story of the origin of life on Earth. And in that alternative story, the world as we have it does not need a designer or divine architect. It can be explained without any reference to the transcendent. As Carl Truman notes, setting aside the question of whether evolution is true, there is no doubt that vast numbers of people in the West simply assume that it is so. And then in 1931, a scientific paper was published presenting a new theory of the origins of the universe. It became popularly known as the Big Bang Theory, and though it was radical for its time, it's now generally accepted as being correct. According to the Big Bang Theory, the universe was created as the result of a massive explosion about 14 billion years ago, that is, and that it's expanding outwards from that event. The Big Bang Theory may or may not be correct, I don't know, it's not my area of expertise and the science is beyond my understanding, so I'm not going to try and critique it today. But I do know that the theory doesn't explain what caused the Big Bang. It doesn't tell us what exploded or how it exploded. In 1974, the kind of sci-fi comedy movie Dark Star, directed by John Carpenter, featured a bomb on a spaceship that became self-aware. And the film ends with the bomb saying, in the beginning there was me, and I said, let there be light. And of course, boom, it explodes in this light, and there you go. Maybe it was that, who knows, according to what, what theories are today. But the Big Bang Theory doesn't tell us why the universe is uh, how it came to be. I mean, it tells us that there was, a, there was a Big Bang. It doesn't tell us what caused it, what it was that exploded. And it doesn't tell us why the universe is so astonishingly complex and ordered. Everyone, all the scientists that look at this are agreed that there is an order to uh, the cosmos. And so the Big Bang Theory doesn't rule out the existence of a creator God and simply might be proving the moment of his creation of the cosmos. In fact, in 1979, Time magazine did a feature on the Big Bang Theory and said that the Big Bang Theory sounds very much like the story the Old Testament has been telling all along. The Bible, however, begins with God. And the rest of the story is about God's increasing revelation of himself in human history. But the story begins with how God made the world and everything in it. The repeated refrain in the first chapters of Genesis is that uh, what God has made was good. The Hebrew word translated as good is tov and it certainly carries the sense of the quality of something. We might say, oh, that was a good movie or that was a good book. But the word in the text is more than just a statement about the quality of God's workmanship in creation. To understand it more fully, we should consider what is implied by the phrase not good. 
The only thing in the creation story that's described as not good is that it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for him to be the only one of his kind. To contrast these two phrases suggests that another meaning of good is that it describes something which operates according to its purpose, the purpose for which it was made. I mean, a chair is no good if it collapses under your weight every time you sit on it. It's only a good chair if you can sit on it. In other words, it does what it says on the tin. Humanity is the crown of God's creation, for humans are the only created thing made in the image of the Creator. But God is a trinity, Father, Son and Spirit, living in perfect community of perfect love. As a creature made in God's image, humanity is intended to reflect the Creator within creation, and the man cannot do that on his own. And so God makes women to be the man's counterpart, and together they reflect God in creation as they live together with God in a community of mutual love and in doing so they fulfil their purpose and so God's verdict on creation is that it was very good. That purpose has not changed and even today that longing for community and a sense of belonging of being part of that community of love uh, is all around us. The popular TV show Friends is all about the search for meaningful relationships. The longing is found in the pop music from Coldplay to U2. One of the best expressions of it uh, that I've seen in popular culture was a, a series of adverts that were on TV a few years ago for Carling Black Label Beer. Uh, each advert was based on the sense of community and belonging. I remember the first one was a murmuration of starlings and there was no voiceover, there was no text on the screen, just this murmuration of starlings. And then uh, at the end of the advert, up came the word belong, and then the Carling Black Label uh, logo. Even in our sinful fallen state, even unknowingly, we are still trying to reflect the Creator in His creation. Unfortunately, Genesis tells not just the origins of humanity, and God's good creation, but also the origin of how it all went wrong and why we now live in a world that is not good. The reason the Bible gives is, is what it calls sin. Genesis 3 tells how Eve was deceived by the serpent and how Adam disobeyed God and so sin came into the world. The harmonious relationship between the man and the woman is broken and even more significantly their intimate relationship with God is also broken. Even the relationship with the land, with creation itself, is broken. Previously, Adam and Eve had enjoyed a close relationship with God, walking with him in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, instead of running out to meet him when they heard him coming, they run away and hide themselves. The fact that God clothes them with animal skins is itself an implication of how things have now changed. For previously, man had named all the animals. He, he knew them all by name, and now an animal has been killed in order to cover his shame. It's not just Adam and Eve's relationship with each other and with God that was broken by their disobedience. The whole world was broken, and it was the fault of humans. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul writes about all of creation groaning like a woman in labour, 
and so we have earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes and other natural disasters. It's ironic that we call such events natural disasters because according to the story the Bible tells, they're not natural at all. They're a result of the effects of sin in the world. The harmony and perfection, the goodness of the whole of creation has been affected by human sin. Canadian singer Bruce Coburn has a song called Broken Wheel in which he picks up on the eastern perceptions of the cosmos being like a wheel and in his song the image is of a wheel that doesn't roll properly but rather it bounces along because it's broken. And he sings, you and me, we're the break in the broken wheel, a bleeding wound that will not heal. The brokenness of the cosmos stems from the brokenness of humans' relationship with God. The result of human sin was that God's good creation was now not good. Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden and in toil they worked the land for the rest of their lives. The brokenness of the world didn't end with their deaths but continued on in their children's lives and their children's children and their children's children's children and so on. Genesis 5 recounts a long list of Adam and Eve's descendants and concludes with one of the saddest statements in all of the Bible in Genesis 6 verses 5 and 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. You know, it's all too easy for us to um, rationalise our own sinful behaviour in very much the way that Adam and Eve did in the garden, to justify it, to think that it doesn't really matter. But if I've learned anything in life, it's that sin always exacts a price, and the price is always greater than we imagine, and one act of disobedience can have far-reaching consequences, not just for ourselves, but for other people also. And even if you manage to keep your sin private, it will exact a great price as it eats away at your soul, destroying you from the inside out. Unless God deals with it, it will bury you. But the overall picture in Genesis then in these opening chapters is, is pretty much a story of a disaster. All the promises of chapters 1 and 2 is destroyed in chapter 3 and the picture that follows on in the chapters after that is one of increasing wickedness of humanity going further and further away from God and becoming more and more wicked and doing more and more evil. And it's just a disaster. And yet, even with the tragedy of our human story, mixed in with that tragic uh, aspects of the story, there is hints of hope of a better future. There's a hint of a promise of ultimate victory over evil. In Genesis 3, there's an order of blame, of passing the buck. The man, when confronted by God, the man blames the woman and the woman blames the serpent. The order is reversed in God's judgment of them and it's the serpent who is the first to be judged and God's judgment is not immediately obvious to understand. In, in Genesis 3.15, we I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
it will take thousands of years and the rest of the unfolding story of the Bible to explain what that means. From our vantage point in history, we know that this was a promise to send a saviour, someone who would undo the work of the serpent and restore a relationship with God. But from the pages of Genesis, we have to fast forward thousands of years to the coming of Jesus as God's saving king. We see the hope that the grace of God will lead to salvation. In Genesis chapter 6 to 8, we see the continuation of wickedness and how this broke God's heart and how he decided to destroy all that he had made. And yet, there was one man who found favour with God. Noah, we are told, was a righteous man. And whilst righteous isn't defined in the text, it was clear that he was a man who was willing to listen to God and to obey him. If you read Noah's story, you discover that he wasn't in any way a perfect man. And so in saving him and his family, God acts out of grace and mercy. If it were not for the grace of God, no one could stand. All who come to him do so, not on the basis of deserving anything from God, but on the basis that he is a merciful and loving God. And the Bible teaches us right from these opening chapters that God is a merciful and loving God. And that is intended to turn our hearts away from wickedness and towards him, to give us that hope that we will experience that grace and that mercy. There's also, I think, in these opening chapters of Genesis, uh, a kind of hope that God is ultimately in control, that we're not just left to the whims of fate. It didn't take long for the wickedness of man to continue to grow and spread all over the earth again. Genesis 11 verses 1 to 9 tells the story of how the people tried to build a great city with a tower reaching into the heavens and how God then confused their languages so they couldn't understand each other and the work had to be abandoned. Now there's nothing wrong with wanting to be a builder and there's nothing wrong with building a tower. So why did God punish them? Why did God judge them in this way? Well, God judged them because of why they embarked on the building project in the first place. It wasn't the building itself. It wasn't how they were using the skills that they'd learned, but rather it was their motivation for doing so. The text tells us that they wanted to make a name for themselves. It was their prideful refusal to give God his rightful place that was the real problem. And that, was the, that is actually the root of all our wickedness. They wanted to build a tower up to the heavens so they could be like God. Here's the sin of the Garden of Eden being replayed out in Babel. And it is replayed out again and again in their own lives. When we fail to give God his rightful place, all kinds of wickedness follow. Of all the different idolatries that plague our lives, none is so insidious or difficult to discern as the idolatry of the self, of putting ourselves in the place where only God should be. You know, when you look at the world around us, things look very much like they did in the time of Noah. Everyone does what they think is right in their own eyes. There's wickedness everywhere. Sin abounds. What the Bible calls evil, we now call good. What the Bible calls good, we now call evil. And that sort of situation 
amid such wickedness, we have to ask ourselves, well, where am I in all this? Have I, am I living a life that finds favour with the Lord? Am I a righteous person insofar as I am willing to listen and to obey God, even though that might mean I'm going against the flow of, of the culture all around me? You know, God has promised that he's not going to destroy humanity in the same way that he did in Noah's day. But the Bible is also clear that it's a day coming when all of humanity will stand before the throne of God and that there will be a final judgment of God upon humanity. Until then, God calls us to turn to him, to receive his grace and mercy, to begin to reflect uh, his character and nature, his goodness in the world and become agents of that goodness and grace and mercy to the broken world around us. That's the calling that we have and I pray that all of us will fulfil that calling in the week ahead. Thanks for listening.